0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today with the housing crunch. The shortage of housing, the affordability crisis in Metro Vancouver. Here comes the government to the rescue now. Yesterday, B.C. Premier David Eby outlining his rental housing plan for the middle class. Now, this is a $2 billion plan, 4,000 rental homes targeted at middle income earners. Check this out here now. Families could be eligible even if they make over $190,000 a year. Yeah, you imagine that a family making 190k be eligible to rent a two-bedroom home or larger at discounted rates david Pre- uh, D- premier david Eby yesterday saying he's heard from families who are making this kind of loot 190,000 bucks a year then they can't find an affordable place to rent got kevin falcon standing by to discuss david eb going after him specifically yesterday here listen to eb here going after bc united leader kevin falcon
1: the uh, leader of the opposition kevin falcon who uh, quite frankly uh, is uh, one of the architects of the housing crisis that we found ourselves in by failing to take the steps that we have taken i welcome him to be the first person uh, to tour through the housing that we are going to be building for middle-income british Columbians.
0: okay don't forget is an election coming up here in the fall let's check in with kevin falcon now leader of the opposition in the legislature he is the leader of bc united kevin thank you for coming on <laughs>
2: Thank you for having me, Mike. What a great opening. My God, what a softball pitch. I love this.
0: Oh, this is, oh you're playing softball here. Okay. You, you, uh, go, oh, ahead well. and, you go ahead and hit so, this one yeah, out of the park. What do you say to him I'm there?
2: Gonna, I'll, I'll love to hit this one out of the park. Well, you were saying I'm the architect of this. Uh, I can tell you in 2013, I was actually selling townhomes in Surrey for $375,000. Two-bedroom, two-bathroom, double-garage townhomes. That was when housing was actually affordable. Uh, what David Evie and the NDP have to realize is that the public care about results. And after seven years of their government, we've ended up with the most expensive housing in North America and the highest average rent in Canada. That's his record. Now, I am happy to to, to uh, take his criticism about uh, you know, being in the private sector, building homes that used to be affordable and under NDP have become totally unaffordable.
0: Okay, this is a $2 billion plan, 4,000 rental homes here. What do you think of this idea to build subsidized housing for middle income earners? Like, what do you think of that concept? Like a family making $190,000 a year could be eligible to rent one of these homes at discounted rates. Are Are you on board with that?
2: Well, look, I'm very, very concerned. It's, it's very difficult to actually try and understand what they're doing. Um, certainly what's underpinning it is, is this idea that in the year seven of their government, they've suddenly done a flurry of activity on housing to try and trick the public into believing that they're, they're doing something that's going to make a difference. And I do think it's important to recognize that what they've announced is actually a reannouncement of an old program they had called Housing Hub, which we hmm. used to call the Housing Flub because that was a $2 billion program. They've largely just recycled that program, which was a total failure. Uh, Remember, this was the government that promised in 2017 to build 114,000 affordable homes in 10 years. Why do you never hear them talking about that anymore, Mike? Well, Well, okay. I can tell you why. Because they only sold 16,000.
0: Oh, okay. Speaking of that, let's go back into the time machine here and listen to John Horgan, the previous NDP Premier. Here he is in 2017. Yeah, I get kind of deja vu on these these uh, promises too. Let's listen to Horgan here. Uh, nine years ago, let's listen.
3: Our plan calls for 114,000 new housing units to be built over the next 10 years.
0: Okay, seven years ago, actually. 114,000 new housing units. He promised that in 2017. So where are we at with that now?
2: Well, they built just over 16,000 of those units, and 20% of them were started under BC Liberals. Uh, We're now called BC United. Uh, But it just shows, like, that was an absurd promise to make. There's no way government could build 114,000 units of anything over 10 years. And so here we go again. Now they just rename it. He calls it BC Build. It's, uh, you know, the recycled dollars. He's talking about now subsidizing incomes. It's very difficult for me to understand how that's going to work. I can guarantee you, though, it will be like all their other programs. There will be, you know, 60, 70-page application forms that nobody will figure out. None of the money will actually get out to people that need it. And we won't end up dealing with the actual crisis. Mike, the reason we're in a housing crisis right now is because for six of the last seven years, they did virtually nothing to increase the supply of housing to make sure that they worked with municipalities and the province to get permit approvals done so that we could actually get housing into the marketplace. And now in year seven, 10 months before an election, they are now you know, running around like uh, chickens with heads cut off trying to figure out ways to convince the public that they have a plan. This is not a plan. This is more a big government pretending they know how to fix the housing crisis. It's not that- going to work. And uh, you'll hear more about what can work when I talk about our housing plan.
0: Speaking of BC United leader Kevin Falcon, okay, so you're saying that what? The government should just get out of the way and let the private sector build housing because EB has been mocking that idea. He said that doesn't work. The government needs to build this housing. Oh, and by the way, he says they haven't, they don't, they're not stopping at rental. He says they're going to get into home, the home ownership market too. They're going to build homes that people can buy. At subsidized rates. What do you think of this? Do you th- do you think the government should oh. be building this housing, or should the, the private sector do it?
2: Well, the private sector should do it. For God's sake,s just look at his record when he was the housing minister, and he was responsible for BC housing. Look at the fiasco that we uncovered there, where he tried to bury and cover up the Ernst and Young audit reports that showed that. They had contracts being let without proper paper trails. There's all kinds of conflicts of interest. People had to resign. David Eby actually had to fire the entire board that the NDP put in place at BC Housing. It was a fiasco, and now we expect the same people to actually go and have government-built housing? Good Lord. Okay, so I cannot imagine the money that will be wasted, the taxpayer dollars that will be wasted.
0: Okay, so if you win the election in the fall, you would cancel this then. Is that correct? Like This oh, is a $2 billion. Go ahead.
2: Of course I would cancel it because it makes about as much sense as their old housing club plan made sense. What I will do is make sure, look, number one, yes, we need to have more market affordable housing. There's no question about that. The government's not going to be able to build it. You provide the right incentives, and you get the private sector and the not-for-profit sector building that housing, and you build it at scale so that you get lots of supply coming into the market. You need to flood the zone with almost every kind of housing, condos, townhomes, you name it. You need more of it. And then, when you start to get that, that flood of new housing being built, then you will start to break the back of affordability. But to think that government is somehow going to lead the way, a government that can't even run the health care system without having to send patients down south to America to deal with basic health care issues, tells you that this is not the right direction to go in. And I hope that the public doesn't get sucked like they did when they promised 114,000 homes in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So you believe the that. Of those homes.
0: So you therefore believe that the, the private market can fix this good old supply and demand, the invisible hand of the, of the, of the market. If government just gets out of the way, let's the private sector build all these houses and homes that the price will come down. Like, are you sure about that? Because right now no, it doesn't no, seem no. like anything's affordable.
2: Go ahead. No, government, government can play a role, and we can be smart about how we subsidize those with lower incomes to make sure that they can afford to rent uh, in places. There's no question we can yeah. play a role, and I'll have more to say about that in the coming days. But what you need to understand is the greatest amount of rental product in the lower mainland... From- roughly the late 70s to the early 80s. And, and you can still see it everywhere you drive. And You might ask yourself, why is it that all this housing was built during that period and then it stopped? Well, it was because the federal government back in the day had a smart program called the Multi-Unit Residential Building Program. It was a fairly straightforward tax incentive that attracted a whole bunch of capital into the rental market and built a ton of rental that was very affordable for generations of British Columbians. All that stopped when the tax break went away, and then developers moved into building condos. And what we need to do is provide the right incentives to make sure we get the product built that we need. And for God's sake, if people believe that government's going to be able to solve this problem, they're going to be in for the same nasty surprise that they got when the government promised 114,000 affordable homes and couldn't even build a fraction of them.
0: Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let's talk traffic law now with my guest, Paul Doroshenko from Acumen Law. And there's lots going on, lots to talk to him about. Paul, thanks a lot for coming on today. Yep, my pleasure, Mike. Okay, I'm, I'm super interested in your take here on the HOV lane. So I want to ask you about that in a moment here. But first, let me ask you about this wild story here. I don't think I have ever seen this before. A first degree murder charge against a driver for hitting and killing a cyclist here. I don't, I've never seen that. I'm interested if you have. Let's listen to this report. Global news reporter Romina Dea here.
1: A lightning speed investigation from a suspected hit-and-run to a first-degree murder charge over the course of the weekend. It's uh, quite unusual. 45-year-old Stephen Squires of Cumberland has been charged with first-degree murder and failing to stop after an accident causing death. A cyclist now dead after being struck in Courtney Thursday night.
2: It was dark. The road was in good condition. It was pretty dry. Uh, It was dark, but uh, I think uh, the vehicle... Uh, who hid the bicycle with the the person on it.
0: First-degree murder in a traffic case. Paul Doroshenko, have you ever seen that before?
4: Never seen that before. We have talked about it in our office and, and theorized about it. But, you know, for a murder charge, right, it's got to be planned and deliberate. Yeah. So it has to be intentional, an intentional act that a person has planned for first-degree murder, which means the Crown is looking at it and they're saying, we think we can prove this it's not you know we see the odd time that a vehicle is used uh, as a weapon and the person is charged with assault with a weapon and dangerous operation of a motor vehicle causing bodily harm or something like that but this is you know a, a first degree murder charges is, is assuming that it was intentional planned yeah. deliberate and that the 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 victim here was the intended victim so, it's it's very unusual. It's not something I've ever seen before. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for over 24 years now, um, and uh, a first-degree murder in a uh, in a driving offense is is really just an anomaly in Canadian law.
0: Okay, the guy charged here remanded in custody, and boy, there'll be a lot of eyes on that case as it goes forward here, as we find out more. Officials here are very, very tight-lipped about any further details about this, about whether the driver knew the cyclist, who no, we don't know and i guess we'll find out when this one ends up in court uh paul let me ask you about these rules that you're highlighting here now on passing slowing down and moving over when you see flashing lights on an emergency vehicle or a maintenance vehicle what's the deal here
4: Well, of course, we know the police have these campaigns, right? And they're educational, but they're also enforcement. And so one of the campaigns that we see from time to time uh, is cell phones, for example. And then we see the uh, speed enforcement campaigns. Uh, And so they change their their plans and they've got a campaign coming up again that they've done before. uh, And they do at this time of the year and it's slow down and move over. And the issue is um, people passing police vehicles, ambulances, tow trucks uh, in a manner that's really unsafe and putting those those uh, emergency responders and, and tow truck drivers and so forth uh, in jeopardy. So back in 2015, I guess it was, the provincial government change the legislation so if you're going faster than 80 kilometers an hour and that's the speed limit i guess you know not what you're going necessarily but the speed limit and you're passing an emergency vehicle you must slow down to 70 and if you're going uh below 80 kilometers an hour and you're passing an emergency vehicle as you pass them you must lower your speed to 40 or lower Uh, and the purpose of this is basically just to protect those those uh uh, uh, you know, responders who are dealing with things at the roadside. And very often we see videos of, uh, you know, particularly from the U.S., of police cars that are s- struck when they've got somebody yeah. pulled over. Oh. And it's, you know, it's it's a huge uh, risk for police officers. I mean, it's one of the most dangerous things uh, of their job is is pulling people over and standing by the roadside. The threat isn't the person who's driving, it's the people driving past.
0: Yeah, And, and the we going to see... And the government, just just for some background for the listeners, the government saying that some first responders and road maintenance workers, 230 of them have been hit uh, in these type of uh, collisions over a 10-year period. 12 of them have died so the government saying look when you see those flashing lights on an emergency or maintenance vehicle you must slow down you must move over what does move over mean you got to move over into the right lane and let them pass what, what does that mean move over
4: yeah I if you're on a, a highway that's just divided by a line so single lane either way um, your obligation is to uh, to slow down and move over as far as possible possible uh away from the um emergency vehicle so okay. even if it's on the other side of the road right okay. uh if you're on a two-lane road you've got to get into the uh, other lane um and uh it doesn't matter if it's a divided highway if it's a divided highway you don't have to slow down you don't have to move over like if it's a you know if you're on the cocahola and it's on the other side of the Coca-Cola, you're not required to uh, okay hundred and uh, hundred uh, yeah. the
0: offense here one hundred and seventy three dollar fine is the penalty here and also three penalty points. What do you think of that penalty? hundred and seventy three bucks doesn't seem like a very high f- ticket.
4: Well, it's interesting because, as I say, they're about to start this campaign. You know, uh, police officers let us know before these things come out, uh, and you, you're looking at it now in light of inflation um, and uh, what we've gone through in the last, uh, you know, four or five years. And you're thinking to yourself, $173 is not the deterrent uh, that you would hope it to be, because we're talking about lives at risk and really a, a, a significant safety issue when you've got uh, basically pedestrians on the highway or or vehicles parked uh on the highway is this enough of a disincentive enough of a discouragement yeah. again i think it's something that the uh you know mike farnworth should probably be revisiting uh, a lot of the fines that uh, that are out there because i don't think the fine in itself it provides any discouragement yeah. at 173 bucks
0: Paul Doroshenko, Acumen Law, is my guest. Okay, Paul, let's get into the HOV lane issue here. We've talked about this on the show before. The HOV lane, high occupancy vehicle lane. Now, of course, like for a normal vehicle, you're talking about at least two people in the vehicle, the driver and at least one passenger. Then you can drive in the HOV lane. If you have an electric vehicle, a qualified electric vehicle with the EV sticker on the back, you can drive in the HOV lane, even if it's a single occupancy vehicle, just the driver. You don't need a passenger if it's an EV. Let's listen to former traffic cop here, Grant Gottguthru, on an earlier show on this point.
5: It's like, oh, buy an EV and you can use the HOV lane anytime you want. It's like, no, uh, that's 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 an abuse of the HOV lane legislation, and again, that's not what it was designed for.
0: Okay, there's a lot of people saying that maybe it's time to kick the EVs out of the HOV lane because so many people are driving electric vehicles. Now, Paul, what do you think?
4: Well, that's an interesting point, right? Was it intended to be a forever thing? What happens when 90% of the vehicles on the road are, are EVs? So that will be ridiculous at that point, right? When it's five percent and you're looking at it, you're saying, "Well, that's a geez, the EV lane is or the uh, uh, HOV lane is is as packed up as any other lane." You're starting to wonder what's the point of having the HOV lane. Now, you know, sometimes I'm quite lawfully driving in the HOV lane in my gas-powered vehicle with a passenger, and somebody in a Tesla comes flying up and uh, and passes me using the right-hand side. Uh, because they've come to conclude that this is sort of like the, uh, uh, the first class lane. Uh, and <laughs> I don't think that's something that, that people are going to uh, uh, be supportive of for long if it gets to the point where there's no advantage uh, for you carpooling. Right.
0: Well, well yeah. Uh, the and idea
4: of the HOV lane is the carpooling lane or the, you know, to everybody gets to work. So it's not, not just a single person, a single vehicle each time.
0: Well, it's completely counter to what an HOV lane is supposed to be, isn't it? I mean, HOV stands for high occupancy vehicle. Right. I mean, if you're allowing an EV to just drive in the HOV lane with with just the driver. Well, that's obviously it's, it's not high occupancy. Maybe you just got yeah, one well, yeah. guy in the vehicle. <laughs> It was
4: designed to be an encouragement, uh, you know. With this, this exemption that uh, allowed uh, EVs to drive in there, it was designed to be an encouragement to get an EV. But is it something that's going to exist for forever? I don't know. I mean, there's uh, credit card companies come up with uh, with with point schemes that allow everybody to go into the uh, into the lounge, uh, Air Canada's lounge, and now you're lining up to get in the lounge. And there's no point in having that point scheme anymore, or having the lounge anymore if you're you know can't get in. Uh, it's a similar thing, right? You uh, you you can't you can't use the HOV lane because it's filled with uh, with electric vehicles. Yeah. Um, it's defeating the purpose of, of you know the idea of it, which was to encourage people to get into uh, their vehicles with other people and travel together.
0: I think it could be an election issue in the fall. Let's listen to the BC Conservative leader here. He's surging in the polls right now. Uh John Rustad, he was on an earlier show with me. I asked him about this issue around HOV lanes and electric vehicles having access. There here's what he said. The
3: privilege of being able to use a high occupancy vehicle lane um for electric vehicles, I think that should come to an end too. High occupancy vehicle lanes should be for high occupancy vehicle regardless of the vehicle. But currently, our, our, what we have in the province is if you drive an electric vehicle, you don't have to have high occupancy. You're allowed to use an HOV
0: lane. All right, we're talking about life in the HOV lane here. EVs allowed in there just with a single driver. Should that be should that come to an end? Paul Doroshenko is my guest. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Peter in Burnaby. Hiya, Peter. Go ahead.
3: I'm taking offense at of the way that you guys have positioned this. You know, as an EV driver, I didn't ask for the privilege of driving in an HOV lane. That came as part of an initiative that is green in its orientation. Driving an electric car is a green initiative, as is high occupancy. The fact that I went out and spent the money on that vehicle, chose to buy that vehicle, shouldn't then vilify me as a driver, which is, by the way, the way you're positioning it, your you're guest. Uh, a Tesla flying by to come into the lane. Um, um, I, I just ignore the conservative leader anyway. He's an idiot. But beyond that, <laughs> I think I think what we need to recognize here is yeah. that anyone driving an EV is doing something that is good for better for the environment, and that is that was the purpose of an HOV lane. So do you think Not it should be for?
0: So do you think it should be forever then? Like EV should be allowed in that lane forever? eventually what's going to happen is you're
3: going to just have an extra lane. To your guess point, when you have 80% of the people driving EV vehicles, now you've got an extra lane that can be used for traffic to alleviate congestion. Like, you know, the idea that I'm driving in that lane means that the other two lanes have fewer cars in them. That's an obvious statement. Eventually, it should mean that everybody has an extra lane to drive in as we move towards more ecologically uh, friendly vehicles. Stop vilifying okay. or creating two classes,
0: you okay. Okay, Peter, thank you for the call. All right, Paul, what do you say to him?
4: Lots of passion among the EV drivers, and I'm sure about that. Eventually, it's going to end. Of course, the idea is to get more people into a vehicle, right? Uh, this yeah. was a, um, a reward offered to uh, people to take that environmental choice, to get a uh, EV and... Uh, uh, Good on them for doing it, but when we see significant adoption of EVs, no longer is it going to make sense. We're going to need to get no. people off
0: the road. Yeah, it's and not going to make same. sense. It'll be that even the oh, right. HOV One, lane will be people in the vehicles. So oh yeah, <laughs> even the HOV lane will get yeah. clogged up. John <laughs> in the North Shore. Hey, John, go ahead.
2: Hey, good morning, guys. Um, yeah, so I think the ruling is actually anything that plugs in the wall gets to go into HOV lane because hybrids get in there too, and they're kind of mm. a polluting electric car. Um, So the thing that drives me crazy is the guys that jump from the HOV lane to the third lane and then back and forth and back and forth to get around everybody. Um, And there's another interesting stat you can look up online. The three worst drivers, and I own a bunch of these vehicles, three worst drivers are BMW drivers, Mercedes drivers, and electric car drivers. And they put a quote in after electric cars because they have so much attitude, they believe they have the right to do anything
0: okay John th- thank you for the call what Paul what is the penalty for driving in the HOV lane if you're not allowed to be in there like what if you're driving in there and you don't uh, let's say uh, you're driving a gas it's,
4: go ahead sadly as a... A small fine uh and i don't think there's any demerits on it um you know people are hit with it from time to time and if you're hit with it a few times i'll tell you the police uh will be looking for all the other offenses that you committed usually speeding uh but uh yeah it's not a huge fine a lot of people i Mm -hmm. know go you know over a solid line to get into the hov lane get out of the hov lane pass vehicles in uh that are in the hov lane uh that's disobeying a traffic control device and solid crossing over a solid line in those circumstances so um you know there's there's other offenses that they can be hit with uh but uh yeah i mean the hov lane the intention of the hov lane and how it's always used is not always what we would like to yeah. see
0: star 9898 is the number to call in your cell toll free star 9898 Mitch in maple ridge hi morning guys yeah i think uh you
2: know you already sort of addressed it but if, if, if the only penalty for a crime is a fine, then the law doesn't apply to the rich. So if if the fine isn't increased uh, and if the white line isn't turned into, I don't know, a six-inch high curb, it is in some states. Um, you go into that HOV lane, you're in the HOV. Airport.
0: Oh, so you mean some like, people- oh, there, there'd be a curb, like once you're in the HOV lane, you got to stay there?
2: Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And that, that avoids the whole back and forth with people weaving in and out of it or just ducking into it for a few hundred meters to get around mm. congestion because they're in a hurry, which also creates dangerous situations because if you're in the HOV lane, you're expecting to be able to continue to roll. And holy crap, here comes this guy merging across four lanes of traffic to duck into it.
0: Mitch, thank you for the call. Let's squeeze in one more. John in Vancouver. John, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead.
2: Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, I got two things I like to bring up. Um, the other evening that I was on Highway One, and this gentleman was on uh, one of those electric scooters on Highway One, Whoa. going towards a brunette. Yeah, and I was at the Husky gas station. He pulled in. and I said, "Hey, dude, I don't think you're supposed to be driving that on the uh, HOV lane." And he <laughs> says, "Well, I'm entitled because it's an electric vehicle."
0: Another... I, don't, I don't think so, man. Thank, thank you for the yeah. call. We're out, of, we're out of time. Is that true? Can you drive it? You can't drive an electric scooter on Highway One, Paul. Can you? Nope,
4: absolutely no. not. <laughs> uh, it is prohibited. I don't know the section just off the top of my head, but you've got to be able to go no. minimum speed on
0: uh, on the highway. Paul, thank you for coming uh, on. Uh, and uh, those devices not expected. Thanks, Mike. Let's talk about the B.C. government's move now to joint decision-making with First Nations on public land use decisions. This is a red-hot political issue right now, shaping up as a key election issue in British Columbia this fall. The government right now, consulting with the public on looming changes to the B.C. Land Act to implement this. Now, it would allow for agreements to be made with First Nations for shared decision-making powers, joint decision-making over public land use. Now, here's the question. Does this now confer veto powers to First Nations? Could First Nations now wield a veto over public land use decisions? Got Terry T.G. standing by, B.C. Assembly of First Nations. We've talked a lot about this on the show. Now, I spoke to Kevin Falcon, About it, the leader of BC United, the opposition leader here, about this issue on uh, whether First Nations are being given a veto over land use. Here's what he had to say. And joint
2: decision-making means that if one partner doesn't agree with the decision, it doesn't go ahead. That means a veto. And that they intend to provide a veto to First Nations across the province that uh, impacts 95% of public lands.
0: The government wants to give First Nations a veto over land use decisions in B.C. The cabinet minister responsible, Nathan Cullen, he was on the show last week. I asked him about this precise issue. Here's that exchange. The government moving to joint decision-making here with First Nations. Does this, in effect, give First Nations a veto over land use decisions in their territories? No, it is not it is not a veto nor does what we're proposing affect any of the permits or
2: land tenures that exist right now under the land act it does not affect access to the land
0: all right let's discuss now with my guest terry tg terry is the is chief is bc assembly first bc assembly of first nations regional chief terry is a member of the Tacla lake first nation I am very pleased to welcome him. Regional Chief, thank you for coming on today.
6: Yeah, good morning. Thank you.
0: Good morning to you. Thanks for doing this. Okay, let's get right into it here on this issue around a veto. What do you think about this now? You hear the opposition party saying this is a veto over land use decisions being given to First Nations. Is it a veto? Uh,
6: No. Uh, Quite frankly, uh, hearing those comments from uh, Kevin Falcon and also from John Rustad, the leader of the Conservative Party, uh, when I stood up in November 2019 in the legislature to talk about implementing the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples Bill C41, that uh, I had to address this issue on veto. And really, I think you know the Land Act amendments is that commitment to implement and align many of the laws with with UNDRIP. Uh, no government do has a a, a veto, but rather uh, within the uh, spirit of of the united nations declaration it's to create that space where all decision makers can come together and make a decision
0: right okay so let's let's talk about how this would change things though right because under the existing system right now under the bc land act this authority around public land use tenures licenses authorizations That rests now with the minister, the cabinet minister responsible, who's responsible for making an interest in the public interest. If that is now going to be shared in a joint decision-making process with First Nations, how does that work? Are you saying the government, if it's not a veto for First Nations, the government still has the final decision? Is that right?
6: No I I think rather if there is a, a I suppose a dispute on how, on how decisions are, are made or is made on whatever project is that perhaps there there should be some sort of a dispute resolution. Um, and I think it's uh, really important to to understand what free prior and informed consent is. We the you know in the end, what uh, UNDRIP uh, is really doing is is avoiding many of these issues, in terms of development, where there is differences of opinion, in, in the past uh, we've seen this play out, uh, whether it's uh, public protests and or uh, court litigation, and time and again, uh, you know, First Nations and uh, the Court, the Supreme Court of Canada, such as Delgamuukw Stayaway, and also with uh, uh Supreme Court decisions have come out and said, "Yeah, First Nations do." uh, have an ability to govern themselves, but further that they have an ability to make decisions. So what the court has always stated was, is tells the government, the provincial government, go back to the first nations and figure this out. So really, I think we're, we're, we're bypassing, uh, really, I think, uh, you know, court decisions and or court play, uh, well, I, I, I suppose court, um, uh, litigation, and then go straight to to how decisions are, are going to be made. Um, and, and and you see it uh, with uh, the Team who who's proven title that there is uh, different arrangements with the provincial government and different ways to make decisions on their lands. So I think, right. you know, for nations, this is our ability and this is the commitment that we heard, not only for provincially, but also federally and how decisions are made in in, in this province.
0: Okay. Can you understand why there may be some apprehension or concern about this if people own, uh, have business interests on, on Crown land or they have a project and now there will be shared decision making with First Nations on, on a project that had been previously the exclusive domain of the, of the minister responsible? Let me, let me give you an example, Terry, for your thoughts. Okay. So let's say you've got a developer builds a, a marina and there's an agreement with the First Nation, uh, to allow this marina. And then there is going the the owner wants to do a change, wants to expand the marina, add a whole bunch more boat docks or something. And if the, fir- the and the BC government says, "Yeah, we believe this is a good project; it's in the public interest; we think that should go ahead," what happens if the First Nation there says no to it? Like I, I, a- I suppose yeah. Yeah, This
6: ahead. is this is the issue. This is the issue. I think uh, is how business and and. Uh, God bless that there are businesses that are thinking ahead and matter of fact are having their own policies aligned with UNDRIP, but further to that are creating that relationship with First Nations. And you really, I think creating those uh, relationships with First Nations, even before coming to the government and asking uh, whether this development is a good idea. So I think, you know, progressive uh, businesses and uh, those that are interested in, in development and on First Nations lands, yeah. go to the First Nations and ask. And this was the whole point. I, I mean, this is the the issue of why many First Nations ended up in court, such as the and how decisions are made. Because, so, like I said, Delgamuk, Haida, Nakooklingit, uh, Tivikotin, was that the governments and the public and businesses did not ask or really excluded First Nations in our decisions are being made. And those adverse effects affect the the indigenous peoples and, and who have to live with that legacy of whatever development is. So this has been, uh, I think these amendments are are, are a good thing. It, it really bypasses uh, many of the disputes that are out there on the land and come to decision uh, uh, much more earlier.
0: Yeah, I I guess though I I guess well I guess my point is what if there is, is not an agreement, what if the government believes that a change in a project would be in the public interest? Let me give you another example. Like let's say there there's a golf course on a on Crown land that's been approved and the owner of the golf course wants to build a whole bunch of new housing on the on the golf course, put up a bunch of condos, and the government says, Okay, we think that's in the public interest, we need more housing, go ahead. But the first nation involved says no we we don't allow this who like who has the hammer there like are are you saying that the government if if there's no veto from first nations then the government would still be allowed to say yeah go ahead and build that housing even if the first nation disagrees if there's no veto
6: well whoever's making the development should be going to not only the government but also to the first nations to ask if this is a good idea and uh, i think it's really important to understand that if, if you do make a change in uh, those two examples, such as a marina or a golf course, for whatever reason, let's not get into specifics. Let's say there's certain uh, artifacts or there's a, a gravesite or whatever the, the case may be, is the reasons why perhaps maybe the First Nations do not want that sort of development. I think we really got to think about how we use land in this, in this province and in, in this country. And uh, it really comes back to what, you know, many First Nations have done in this province is, is land use planning. And land use planning is very important, especially from a First Nations perspective, to really understand when develop happens. Uh, well, first and foremost, where development happens. Uh, but most importantly, when development happens. Um, we can't have uh, unobstructed, uh, free development um, uh, you know that that's unchecked, and and I think this is uh, you know one of the issues that many First Nations have with uh, some of the current development that's happening in this province, and and far too often we see. And my background is forestry, that there's not enough planning in terms how forestry development happens, oh. and uh, further to that, or or any other development, and and this is the whole point of uh, more recently the Blueberry First Nations court case, which proved and was upheld in the Supreme Court of British Columbia, that the issues of cumulative impacts on the land have a detrimental effect on not only First Nations communities, but all communities in British Columbia. If it's left unchecked, um, you know, there's there's detrimental effects on yeah. the cattle move, uh, many terrestrial animals, and other development that, that can potentially happen in that area.
0: Speaking of Terry T. G., Regional Chief of the BC Assembly of First Nations, we're talking about these changes, proposed changes to the BC Land Act, shared decision-making over land use decisions with First Nations. Terry, what happens if there is an overlapping land claim? Like this is quite common in British Columbia, where you may have two or three or maybe more First Nations. All claiming the same area of land as their traditional territory. How does how does that get resolved? Like, let's say one First Nation is in favor of a project, but another one is not, and they both claim the same territory. How does that get resolved?
6: Well, um, you know, recently in the last few years, we've had uh, meetings about this, about shared um, territories and, and so-called overlapped uh, areas, or you know, for competing perhaps maybe First Nations. Yeah. I think it really comes back to to the First Nations uh, communities and our ability to make our own decisions. Uh, certainly, here too, there there needs to be some sort of dispute resolution. And further to that, uh, one of the things that um, has been brought up, brought up at these meetings is perhaps um, uh, really, I think, uh, treaties among our First Nations communities within each other's. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would say. Uh, administration or governance um would be really necessary and perhaps you know if there's ability to come to uh some sort of resolution and, and these shared territories and how perhaps maybe these areas there can be shared decision making as well and uh, certainly we've seen that before um and i think it's uh really a, a part of some of the issues uh, the legacy of uh, uh certainly uh past administrations of uh, of government that have okay. uh, i would say have created some of the,
0: these issues and okay, we continue my discussion now about the bc government's move to joint decision making with first nations on public land use decisions my guest is terry tg regional chief of the british columbia assembly of first nations will this give veto powers over land use decisions to first nations in BC. That's the accusation from critics here. Uh, Terry says this is not veto power being given to First Nations. Terry, let me ask you about uh, a recent agreement between the BC government and the Taltan First Nation about the management of a, a, a Gold and copper mine, the Red Chris Mine. This is a, a very high profile agreement, and the government has pointed to this agreement saying, look, this is how this is going to work. This mine is going forward. People should not worry about this. And I'm looking at the the press release that came out on that agreement. And it it looks at a potential change in the operation of the mine. If there was a a move to change the mine from an open-pit mine to an underground cave mine, and it says these amendments cannot proceed without Taltan consent. How is that not a veto if they can't change this mine without the consent of the First Nation? How is that not a veto?
6: Well, this is uh, what you're referring to as a Section 6-7 uh, agreement, uh, where there is uh, decision-making uh, you know, for First Nations, and uh, certainly this is one of the agreements uh, for uh, the Taltan central government to, to make those decisions for themselves. Further to that, it's uh, really the, the space to create, uh, and, and this matter of fact, this was uh, 2019 uh, amendments that were made to the Environmental Assessment Act, which allows First Nations to create their own environmental assessment uh Process where they can uh, come to a conclusion about how development occurs, and and certainly this is a part of their decision making. And really, I how's, think it, how's it in, not a how's it not a veto, though? We just
0: sadly we just have a minute left here, but how's that not a veto?
6: Well, it's it's coming together and making the decision together, and whether uh, the provincial and uh, the Maltese uh, agree to that decision in terms of whatever those changes are, or whether it's an open pit or an underground mine is how the decisions are made. And uh, really, it, I think it's a p- space where First Nations can come to make their own decisions. And and this is a whole point of uh, UNDRIP, uh, free, prior and informed consent, where decisions are made and decisions perhaps are made together.
0: Okay, but I guess my point is, what if they can't? What if you can't make a decision together? What if the government says,
6: "Yeah, we would well, like this"? to... Okay, we right. could go in circles here. Um, but this is why we need to make uh, some sort of dispute resolution process with uh, First Nations and how decisions okay. are made, and perhaps this is where I think you know what we're seeing is uh, is a lot of fear mongering in terms of uh, what is coming. Uh, with the Land Act amendments, and it's going to happen with a a number of issues here, especially with the Dirt Ministry, such as forestry, mining, etc. It's coming. Regional Chief, I'm very grateful to you for your time today.
0: Thank you for coming on. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's talk about protecting kids now from tobacco and nicotine addiction. Now, of course, there have always been concerns about youth smoking cigarettes, and there's been a lot of progress made on driving down smoking rates. The other one I think that's even more concerning for parents right now is vaping by young people. Man, I'll tell you, whenever I walk by, there's a a local high school in my neighborhood, and I see a bunch of kids together vaping i mean come on guys can we make better decisions here on this i got two teenage boys at home they're not vaping but a lot of their friends are and some of them are using nicotine juice in in these vapes it's it's concerning it's a problem i think the government's brought in a lot of regulations on that here's a new one now though nicotine pouches and particularly flavored flavored nicotine pouches here that could be attractive to kids. The B.C. government here taking action on this. David Clement is my guest. He's standing by. First, let's have a listen to Premier David Eby here, uh, making a move here to restrict where these nicotine pouches, known as the Zonic, is a very popular brand of this nicotine pouch, new regulations on where they can be sold in B.C. Let's listen.
1: Zonic will only be available behind the pharmacist counter following regulations that will be introduced by our Ministry of Health. Um, These regulations ensure that there's a pharmacist between the person who is seeking uh, these uh, products uh, and uh, the products themselves.
0: Okay, so the government moving to restrict where these nicotine pouches can be sold. They were previously much more widely available. Now they will be behind the pharmacy counter. Let's discuss with my guest now, David Clement, North American Affairs Manager, Consumer Choice Center. Very pleased to welcome him back. David, thanks a lot for coming on today.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, David, what do you think of this move by BC here? These nicotine pouches, these flavored pouches here, you could only get them behind the pharmacist counter. What do you think of that move?
5: I think it's a bit of an overreaction that kind of misses the point and misses an obvious solution in terms of youth having access. So nobody wants youth to have access to these. They're for smokers trying to quit. They're particularly useful uh, for smokers trying to quit. You don't have to inhale anything. Um, and the the reason why that's important is because if you have these significantly less harmful options available, they should be sold alongside cigarettes so that smokers, every time they go into, let's say, a convenience store to habitually buy their pack of cigarettes, all of a sudden they can see that another option is available. And maybe they're going to make the choice to try that in terms of their road to quitting. And so it makes it a little harder for Smokers who are trying to quit, which is the point of the product. And mm. there are easier solutions if we're worried about kids having access to this. There are easier solutions that uh, the province or the, or the federal government could enact that help solve the problem of, or make a step towards solving the problem of youth, youth access while still trying to nudge smokers to get away from cigarettes, which is, has been a, a goal for the provincial government and the federal government and a good goal what? for decades.
0: Hey, David, where have these products been available up until now? Like the the government here moving to restrict the sales by, to behind the pharmacy counter here for these mm-hmm. flavored nicotine pouches. Uh, until now, could you buy these things in, like you mentioned, a corner store? Like if I'm in a corner yep. store or a gas station, you could buy them there?
5: Yeah, they were traditionally okay. sold uh, at, at retailers where cigarettes are sold.
0: Sure. Sure. Okay. And for people who are unfamiliar with these nicotine pouches, like, what is this stuff? Is it kind of like a like a new wrinkle on like a chewing like a chewing tobacco?
5: So there's actually no tobacco in it at all, which is okay. why, from a harm reduction perspective, this is this is really exciting. So, like, all of the research on how this works is essentially, if you give cigarettes a score of a hundred on risk, nicotine pouches score a one which is the same as, like, Nicorette gum, lozenges, sprays, all of the other tools that smokers might use to to try and quit smoking. Um, So exponentially lower risk. They're just put in your mouth, under your lip, and it allows for smokers who, what they're addicted to isn't the smoke, it's the nicotine, and so it allows for them to get nicotine in a way that doesn't require them to light tobacco on fire, which is what gives you cancer, And so it potentially has a huge benefit from a public health standpoint. We just have to have a regulatory framework in place that continues to encourage smokers to make that switch rather than making it harder for them to.
0: Okay. The government here raising the alarm about this product, though, especially because it has some of these nicotine pouches are flavored and mm-hmm. the Premier worried that this could appeal to kids. Let's have another listen to him here. David, get your thoughts. So this is Premier David Eby here on restricting the sale of these tobacco, these nicotine pouches here. Here he is talking about it. Let's listen.
1: We certainly want to avoid products that experts are concerned have been designed to, in order to appeal to children. Uh, one of those products experts have raised concern, concerns about is a product called Zonic. Uh, This is a product that should not be available to kids, should not be used by kids.
0: Okay, should not be available to kids, should not be used by kids. I mean, presumably, David, I mean, isn't there an age restriction on this product right now?
5: So that is where a lot of the debate is. So right now, if something is, is regulated as a smoking cessation tool by Health Canada, which these products are, they're not actually age restricted. And in fact, in... The announcement to have them sold in pharmacies. Pharmacies aren't going to be asking for identification either, so that's a that is a problem. They should be age restricted. They're for smokers. Um, they should be in line with whatever the age in a in a province is to smoke. So that is a valid concern. One that's just easily solved by making them age restricted. Um, and then the other uh, item to make them to to take the the youth aspect. Um, which is a concern to take it out of the equation is just sell them from behind the counter. Like everything else that's age restricted in the corner store. So somebody has to go up to ask for them. The, the person at the desk has to then ask for identification if they look like they're under the age of majority. That is a great way uh, of solving this problem. The, the issue is, is that Nicorette products, if we use that for as an example, yeah. uh, they aren't age gated at all. And those have all sorts of flavors like fresh fruit, cool berry, mint, spear, uh, mint, spearmint, et cetera. The reason why they have those is because that helps smokers quit. And so you want to balance not youth not having access to it, very important, but also don't take away the, the flavors that smokers are going to want to try to get away from cigarettes. And so that's the issue on the flavor debate is that every time we restrict flavors, you make them less appealing to smokers. And the whole point is to try and get smoking rates down as low as humanly possible. Uh, And this has been a useful tool in other countries.
0: Speaking of David Clement, we're talking about the British Columbia government moving the sale of flavored nicotine pouches to pharmacies only behind the counter of the pharmacy. So your point there, David, that you're saying that if this is being used as a smoking cessation device, people are trying to quit smoking cigarettes maybe they transition to this nicotine pouch instead you're saying that if you can go into a corner store a gas station and you can buy your cigarettes there but you can't buy these nicotine pouches there anymore your your point what's your point there you're saying that the the person might be more yeah. tempted well I'm just gonna buy a deck of smokes then because I can't I can't I don't, I don't have the nick other I, whereas I might have otherwise purchased this nicotine yeah. pouch yeah
5: Right. It, it, well, one, it's hypocritical. Why would you let a convenience store sell cigarettes, but not an exponentially less risky product? I mean, there's a mm. weird imbalance there that I, I haven't heard anyone convincingly justify. Uh, but two, it's mostly about exposure because smoking is habitual. Right? People have their go to spot to go and pick up a pack of cigarettes. And then all of a sudden, maybe they see that there's an alternative option there uh, to help them quit sold in the same place where they go for cigarettes, and it creates that prompt, right, that consumer prompt that, I mean, I haven't met a smoker who does not want to quit or wouldn't love to quit. It's very difficult, and so to be able to prompt them in store in that habit is a huge tool to be like, okay, well, maybe today I'm not going to buy the cigarettes. I'm going to try this, and like I mentioned before, this has worked in other jurisdictions and worked very well.